Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Benoit Mandelbrot and the Kilogram. In addition, we'll be joined by David Harriman. We'll talk about the logical leap. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. It's coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. program on Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It seems like I just talked to you the other hour, just very recently. Well, you know, you're on the other side of the earth, so days seem like minutes, and minutes may seem like hours, if we were by the book, Captain. (laughs) I think I'm going to escape con this time. But you're in the heart of the Genesis planet. In the middle of paradise, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so here we are again, once again, and it's it's amazing. It seems like a long stretch. Frankless Grocks. And Frankful again. <laughs> well, we appreciate your frankness. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Frank. The audience thanks you. So you say. Well, I merely speak for the voice of the people. We do what we can. So, unfortunately, I have to begin with a little bit of a sad news. So, a mathematical giant has actually passed away. Oh, no. It's not Stephen Wolfram, is it? Uh, actually, you're kind of close. He's much older. Uh, it's Benoit Mandelbrot of the Mandelbrot set fame. He did pass away a little while ago, so I'm sad to hear that. But his work lives on. His fractals are beautiful. It's a geometry of nature that is rarely appreciated. I remember very clearly when I first heard about him, because high school when I was taking a computer class, and in one of my projects I was designing a fractal program as a demo, and that was probably inspired by his work. For reminiscing about, I guess I'll talk about the first time I saw the Mandelbrot set. And, there was uh, always a first time, right? <laughs> there's always a first time for everybody. My first time with the Mandelbrot set, it was very special. Blew your mind away. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I could talk about it on air. It's just very personal. So it was like the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people who at least weren't interested in mathematics per se were interested in the images produced by Mandelbrot's fractal ag- right. algorithms. Yeah. yeah, so what's your favorite thing about his fractal algorithms? It's oftentimes been used as descriptions for things like chaos in nature. And so... Right. I think the thing that was just interesting is how it sort of mimicked the actual geometry of nature in the sense that it's at large scales looks kind of smooth, but as you go in, it becomes more jaggedy and you see structure where there's apparently no structure at different scales. It's scales like nature scales. Like, uh, for example, snowflakes, the weather, the stock market. Actually, that was one of his theories was that he thought scientifically modeled the stock market much better using some of his equations. Well, I, I guess we're still not that successful since otherwise we would know <laughs> how the stock's going <laughs> to... Well, I, I don't imagine he died a rich man, so I guess neither did he. <laughs> but, well, he lived richly. Uh, apparently he was working until the very end. He was actually almost 86, and he actually has a book which is set to be published in 2012, so I'm sure we'll get a good majority of that finished. I look forward to reading it, and, you know, I was looking for something to read after Harry Potter series ended, so that's the next thing on my shelf. <laughs> something on my list. It's a bit of a spoiler, but uh, Harry wins. Oh, man. <laughs> you mean Yoda lives, right? But the inspiration lives on. Okay, and science goes on.
perhaps Mandelbrot would have been interested in the measurement of the kilogram. Okay, I, I thought the U.S. does not believe in that. Well, they believe in the audacity of hope. <laughs> Pump up the volume. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's just measured in votes. The kilogram, though, however, is defined actually officially as this 100-year-old cylinder of platinum and iridium, which is kept at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. But the weight of that actual cylinder has actually been degrading over time. Due to um, subatomically decomposing? Yes, decomposition processes taking place in this cylinder. What some researchers are trying to do is actually find a better, more absolute method of finding the kilogram. There's actually been several approaches to trying to attack this problem. One has just been uh, published on the uh, ARCSIV. This is a team led by Peter Becker at the Federal Institute of Physical and Technical Affairs Bureau in Braunschweig, Germany. And what they did is they created a silicon-28 sphere, which they were able to precisely measure the number of atoms in the sphere. By doing that, you can then take a direct measurement of the number of atoms and relate that to a physical quantity like weight. It must be a very ultra, ultra pure sample of silicon. Yes, they, so that was the trick, was synthesizing this ultra, ultra pure sample of silicon. Most of the time, silicon is composed of both silicon-28 and a mix of 29 and 30. They were able to get this really purified silicon-28. Only sphere. that one isotope. Yes. Wow. So they're not going to use the ashes of Gene Roddenberry? Well, I'd be afraid that some pan-dimensional beings would come back for the ashes. Borg doo-doo or something. And of course, there'd be some weird, weird twist ending where the kilogram in fact actually turns out to be the pound <laughs> well it's like saying pi is three <laughs> and as long as we're rounding why don't we just call it one <laughs> we don't need digits anyways interesting for all the people who are interested in how uh, our, our measures uh, are defined and this is uh, one possibility interesting work and it's on the arcsiv very very cool Okay, and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, David Harriman will join us to discuss the logical leap. So stay tuned.
back to the Grok's science show. Well, scientific reasoning is often portrayed as progressing logically from one set of observations or propositions to the next until ultimately a conclusion is reached. But more often, scientists make an inductive leap to generalize from particular examples. Is this process of induction valid in science? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. David Harriman. Mr. Harriman is a noted physicist who's worked for the U.S. Department of Defense and taught for the California State University in San Bernardino. Author of numerous works on the subject, his latest release, The Logical Leap, Induction in Physics, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Harriman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm happy to be here. This is really a very interesting book, uh, The Logical Leap. What exactly is induction? Well, induction is just the process of reasoning from particular observations, particular instances, to a generalization. So, I mean, a good example in science that everybody knows is Newton started out with observations of particular planets, particular comets, and moons, and eventually put all that together to arrive at the universal law of gravitation. One of the questions that this kind of process has brought up and that philosophers have struggled with for 2,000 years is why is it justified to go from particular observations to this sweeping generalization that goes way beyond what's been observed? But scientists do it, of course, all the time. Uh, anytime anyone gives you a general law in a science class, that is arrived at by this process of induction. You make some observations and induce uh, the law or the broad theory. And is this process of induction not generally accepted then in science, or is it a problem? Well, it's accepted in the sense that scientists do it, and they've been doing it very successfully for the last 400 years. Starting with Galileo and Newton and the whole scientific revolution, scientists have been remarkably successful at exactly this process of inductive logic going from the instances to the generalizations. But philosophers have been amazingly unsuccessful in explaining how they do that. So there's a lot of skepticism about this process in logic books, in any philosophy of science class at a university. Today it's gotten to the point where philosophers of science have basically adopted the view that scientific theories are just stories made up by scientists and accepted on the basis of consensus. And so it's a very skeptical point of view that college students get when they actually take courses in scientific method. But that's one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is combat that, to say, no, this really is an objective, logical process. And there's a reason why we can take these laws and send people to the moon successfully, because the laws really are true. And they were arrived at uh, by a discovery process, an inductive discovery process, that's perfectly logical. Hmm. Well, is there a philosophical basis for induction, a logical induction? Oh, yeah. I do lay out what I think are the philosophic foundations for understanding induction in the first chapter of my book. A lot of the process involves coming up with the concepts in a proper way. I mean, I think it's best to take, start with a really simple example, which is what I do in the book. I start out with generalizations that are reached by young children. For instance, I, I take the example, pushing a ball makes it roll. Every young kid grasps that example at a very, very early age. But notice that he's already made that leap to the generalization by saying pushing a ball makes it roll, because all he does is he does it once, and 
he sees the ball rolling, and he immediately makes the generalization to the fact that if he pushes another ball, that will roll too. I explain in the book that the way he does that is by forming the concepts, ball, push, roll, and simply by conceptualizing that process and describing it in terms of those concepts and realizing that it applies to all instances that fall under those concepts, he's already got the generalization. So a lot of the logic behind reaching generalizations is reaching valid concepts and then grasping the causal relationships. So, and it takes me, you know, 250 pages to explain exactly how that works on the scientific level, but it starts very early in life when a child drops something and reaches the generalization, heavy things fall. I mean, we do this throughout our lives, and the only difference between scientific knowledge and those early generalizations that everyone reaches at the age, by the age of two is that the scientist is investigating much more complex phenomenon, and it requires specialized methods like experiment and mathematics. It's inherent in the fact that we use concepts. I mean, unlike the, you know, the lower animals, I mean, they perceive the same things that we do. A dog can see someone pushing a ball and making it roll, yet the dog doesn't come to the generalization, pushing a ball makes it roll. They don't reach generalizations on the basis of what they see. But human beings, because we form concepts and look for causal relationships among those concepts, that's really the essence of human knowledge. And just being at that conceptual level and being able to grasp causal relationships, I mean, that's what a generalization is. It's just a causal connection among our concepts. And isn't there sort of a presumption then that relationships that we observe in specific cases should be regular and, and extend to sort of general cases? That's really inherent in causality in the sense that what we grasp is that the nature of a thing explains why it acts the way it does. That if it has a certain nature, it acts in a certain way. And that's exactly the kind of regularity that we grasp that enables us to reach generalizations and know they're true you argue that current physics might be a little bit divorced from that because of string theory is a little bit divorced from actual experiment. Right, right. Yeah, I think what has happened is, I mean, first, my approach to this book is to first look at proven theories, Newtonian mechanics, for example, or atomic theory of matter, and then look closely at the discovery processes of the brilliant scientists who discovered that theory and see what they did. And so... My approach to discussing scientific method is the same kind of inductive process that the scientists use to discover laws of nature. I'm trying to discover principles of method, but I'm looking at the way that things were actually discovered and then inducing the proper principles of method. What comes out of that study is that the method that led to such great successes for Galileo, for Newton, for Lavoisier and Maxwell and so on, has largely been abandoned in recent decades. I argue that Big Bang Theory and String Theory, they are not using that method anymore. And I think that is the reason why String Theory has been so unsuccessful. I mean, it's dominated theoretical physics for a generation now but nothing has come out of it. String theorists have basically dropped the inductive method that I advocate in my book. 
they have gone back to the older rationalistic method that was advocated by Plato, for example, that we should judge a theory by the symmetry and beauty of the mathematics. They seem unconcerned that the theory doesn't predict any new observations, that it's even inconsistent with some observations. They regard that as secondary if they judge their theory to have this, uh, this beautiful mathematics, uh, that that's enough for them. So that's why they've arrived at a theory that is so detached from the actual world that we see around us. Isn't the field itself hampered by the fact that experimental observations are hard to come by? They claim that they could only get to these super high energies if they had an accelerator that was as large as a galaxy. Then they could gather evidence for their theory. Yeah, there are so many crucial questions in physics today that are unanswered and are accessible to an experimental approach that the fact that they've lost themselves in this 10-dimensional space where they can't relate their theory to observations, that's an outcome of their Platonism. They didn't have to go there, in other words. So what are recommendations then for good inductive reasoning in science? You know, the proper role of experiment in developing a theory, the proper role of mathematics, the right view of mathematics as a tool for understanding the world rather than as a set of abstractions detached from the world. And then I go through the criteria for deciding whether a theory is actually proven. Every aspect of proper scientific method, this is the method that physicists should be following no matter what subject they're tackling. And that method applies to all the questions that physicists really face today, as well as it did to the questions that Newton faced 300 years ago. This is one of the things that's missing from education today. It's a very deductive approach that's taught in, in the schools, because what they do is they give you the theory at the outset, and then they give you an enormous amount of training in how to apply the theory in many different cases. But they never really tell you where the theory came from. I mean, they tell you very little about the discovery process. And so scientists come out of their training with this deductive frame of mind where they really are experts at applying theories. But science is a discovery process, and they know very little about the discovery process or about proper method because they never studied it. I mean, I had this experience. I went through my whole education in physics and only learned how Galileo and Newton and Maxwell discovered what they discovered much later after I got out of school and started doing a lot of studying of the history. I think scientists would have a much firmer grasp of method if they were actually taught the discovery process in school. And I've started an institute, Falling Apple Science Institute, where we're developing a science curriculum exactly along those lines. The way we present science is by following the discovery process. Do you see that there's now a renewed interest on the methods of science? Yeah, there's some renewed interest. There's certainly more programs in colleges now dealing with the history of science than there used to be. And there's a certain amount of interest in history of science, even among philosophers of science. But there needs to be a lot more understanding of that historical discovery process in the science classes themselves. And I, it would give scientists much better grounding 
in where those concepts came from and where those laws came from. If you don't know that, then you're taking the laws basically on authority, and then you're an expert at applying them. And that's just not enough for a scientist. That's, that's certainly true. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some final words regarding the process of induction in science. I'm hoping to that my book appeals to both scientists and educators. I think scientists that read my book will find it fascinating to actually learn how Galileo, Newton, Maxwell discovered what they discovered. And the method that I identify there, I think, could really help them in their research. And as far as educators are concerned, really hope that they start getting interested in presenting science inductively rather than simply giving students the laws and having the students memorize them, which I think is a fairly empty education. Well, the new book is called A Logical Leap, Induction in Physics. Uh, Mr. Harriman, I want to thank you very much, very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, well, thank you. And you were just listening to David Harriman discussing The Logical Leap. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Rocketron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today's topic is called Perfectly Logical or a Random Leap. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as perfectly logical or just a random leap and a little reason why. Mr. Harriman, you ready to play the game? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Person number one, perfectly logical or a random leap. It's LeBron James. <laughs> He's got quite a leap. Um... <laughs> But I don't think it's uh, random, so I have to go with perfectly logical. <laughs> I think he's worked on that leap for a long time. <laughs> uh, all right, person number two, Jerry Springer. Oh, a random leap. <laughs> and that's being generous. <laughs> okay, number three, Stephen Hawking. Uh, I have to go with random leap. I think there's a lot of arbitrary elements in some of his theories. Okay. <laughs> number four, then, it's comedian Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers. Boy, I'm almost forced to, you know, I think she may fit into a category that you haven't given me here, <laughs> but uh, I'll give her perfectly logical. How's that? Okay. 
Finally, number five, President of the United States, Barack Obama. Ah, uh, random leap. Uh, there's, I don't think you can get to his policies by an inductive logical process. Let me put it that way. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Heyman, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around, playing the game, Rockatron 5000, and again, of course, talking about your new book, The Logical Leap, Induction in Physics. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Bye. Welcome back to the program, and now it's time for this week's Question of the Week. And joining us from the 19th century is our very own American hero, Mr. Mark Twain. That's right, Frank. Thank you very much for inviting me back to the Boy, we did have this sort of thing in that. But now on the riverboat gambling. Yes, I hear you are a gambling person. So uh, how do you like to wager? I'll wager you on anything. I'll wager you on the price of stocks. I'll wager you that you can't whitewash that fence for just under a dollar. But you know what you won't wager? I won't wager you on the Pascal's wager. Ah, are you going to bet your life on it? Quite a bet there. Well, if Pascal were correct, I should probably bet my life that there is a god, because if I didn't, I'd be burning in hell. What would Huck Finn say? He would say, boy, I'd like some blueberry pie. <laughs> well, there you have it. And there you have it. I'll see you on the Mississippi PPI. Wow, truly words of wisdom from the amazing Mark Twain. That's why they call me a wordsmith. Thanks a lot. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. You can also see us on Facebook and we're on Twitter. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Got a wager for ya? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you really did sound like that. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs>